This is Guns and Butter. Very important. Uh, you might recall this statement by Bush on the, I think it was on the 25th of September 2001, where he, uh, where he said, and this was repeated ad nauseum, uh, you are either with us or with the terrorists. Okay? You are either with us or with the terrorists. Now, the fact of the matter is that the, that, that the U.S. presidency was already with the terrorists, okay? So the, that, that statement is notoriously, that is a contradictory statement because the Bush family was, were friends with the Bin Ladens. Shafiq Bin Laden was with the dad. Uh, the CIA had been supporting Al-Qaeda since 1979 as documented. I mean, we don't, we've got tons of documents. So this is a nonsensical statement. You are either with us or with the terrorists. The fact is that the U.S. government is with the terrorists. And that is the stepping stone towards the so-called global war on terrorism. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Michelle Chosodovsky. Today's show, the post-9-11 era. Michelle Chosodovsky is an economist and the founder, director, and editor of the Center for Research on Globalization, based in Montreal, Quebec. He is the author of 11 books, including The Globalization of Poverty and the New World Order, War and Globalization, The Truth Behind September 11th, America's War on Terrorism, and The Globalization of War, America's Long War Against Humanity. Today we discuss the broader geopolitical ramifications of the September 11th terrorist attacks, including the attack on Afghanistan, the global war on terror, and the Western Military Alliance support for the terrorists. Michel Chosodovsky, welcome back. Thank you very much. Delighted to be on the program. The terror attacks of September 11th, 2001, opened up a new era, as you have pointed out. The very next day, September 12th, a declaration of war on Afghanistan was announced, and the U.S. attacked Afghanistan on October 7th, 26 days later. What transpired between the morning of September 11th and October 7th that produced a U.S. war against Afghanistan. How did this unlikely result come about, and with Afghanistan, of all countries? Well, that's the crucial question. At 11 o'clock in the morning, CIA Director George Tenet uh, stated unequivocally that Al-Qaeda was behind the attacks, and this was before the conduct of any kind of investigation. It was two hours later. Subsequently, in the evening of 9-11, at the White House, a war cabinet was created, and late at night, a declaration of war was issued against Afghanistan on the grounds that Afghanistan was a state sponsor of these terrorist attacks. Uh, there was absolutely no evidence 
to uh, support these uh, these statements, but nonetheless, they were accepted by the media. And the following day, um, Central European time in Brussels, the North Atlantic Council, which is the governing body of, of NATO, um, issued a statement to the effect that the 9-11 attacks were an act of war from abroad, in other words, implying that America had been attacked by a foreign power, which was totally absurd because there were no jet fighters from a foreign power or Afghanistan in the skies of New York that day. And they invoked the uh, the doctrine of collective security under Article 5 of the Washington Treaty, which is the founding document, to the fact that uh, the United States has been attacked by foreign power, and under the doctrine of collective security, if one member of NATO is attacked by foreign power, all members of NATO are attacked by foreign power, and then they invoke self-defense. In other words, we we have to defend ourselves, and consequently, uh, we uh, must justify um, the conduct of a war against Afghanistan. So that is ultimately what happened. That war was, it was not officially declared until later, but the decision was taken uh, invoking um, Article 5 of the Washington Treaty, collect security, and everybody supported it. All the NGOs, the leftists, and so on, they all supported it. It was an act of retribution to, you know, to Afghanistan having attacked America. But no, nobody really reflected on, on, the, you know, on the causality, apart from the fact there were no Afghanis in, uh, among the, the alleged hijackers. They were, most of them were for, from Saudi Arabia. Um, so they got the country screwed up. Uh, you might say in retrospect, but the the absurdity of this process was that, as you mentioned, 26 days later, Afghanistan was uh, was attacked, uh, invaded, bombed, and nobody within the mainstream media, namely the military specialists and, and advisors and so on who, who understand logistics of war making um, would reflect on the fact that you don't prepare a large-scale theater war thousands of miles away in 26 days. It takes months and months and sometimes years to prepare those wars. In fact, you don't prepare anything in 26 days, uh, a conference, a meeting, and so on. So that the, the whole process was absurd because um, everything indicated that, that the war in Afghanistan had been prepared or was in the pipeline prior to 9-11. So that 9-11 was, was the pretext and the justification for something which was already ongoing. And secondly, nobody begged the question, well, what on earth did Afghanistan have to do with these attacks? And, uh, well, the answer, the official answer was that he was being harbored and protected by Afghanistan. But what the press 
failed to report is that uh, on two occasions, one in September and one in early October, the Afghan government, which which uh, the United States will call the Taliban, uh, they they contacted the State Department through official diplomatic, uh, uh, you know, uh, relations that they had, and said, if you want to negotiate the extradition of Osama bin Laden, we are we will gladly abide and enter into negotiations with you. And um, Bush's response was, we don't negotiate with terrorists. And that was the end of the story. Uh, The United States had no interest in arresting Osama bin Laden. And uh, I should mention another thing, that when George Tenet made a statement at 11 o'clock in the morning on on uh, September 11th, um, nobody within within the media and all the intelligence analysts um, stated something which is so well documented is that Al-Qaeda was a creation of the CIA going back to the Soviet-Afghan war. Is it relevant? Of course it's relevant. So that was the onslaught of, uh, of a new era. When was the decision to go after Osama bin Laden made? Um, well, there was a decision to declare war in Afghanistan. I'm not sure whether there was an actual decision to go after Osama bin Laden per se as, as an individual. And there's another element which which is crucial in the timeline of what happened. And that is that on September the 10th, uh, Osama bin Laden was admitted to a Pakistani military hospital in Rawalpindi, which is a military city. Uh, that is one day before 9-11. Now, he was, he was, he was given dialysis. Now, I'm... I'm I mentioned this because it was corroborated by Dan Rather, CBS News, uh, reporting from Rawalpindi. So that there, there was a, a CBS report that confirmed that on the, on the day before 9-11, and perhaps most probably even on 9-11 itself, uh, we don't know when he was released from the hospital, uh, Osama bin Laden was in Pakistan, and in a military city which is swarming with U.S. military advisors, you don't enter that hospital unnoticed. They knew where he was. Uh, Rumsfeld uh, made the statement, I think, uh, the following day, we don't know where he is. It's like looking for a needle in a stack of hay. They knew where he was. Um, and uh, then the question we might ask ourselves, uh, again, everything, all this borders on ridicule. If Osama bin Laden was in a hospital getting dialysis with his kidney problem, uh, how on earth was he coordinating those attacks, those very sophisticated attacks on the buildings in, in New York City on, you know, uh, what, from his laptop? Uh, was he in, in contact with the hijackers and so on and so forth? But it raises, a, you know, it raises an issue uh, what was the role of bin Laden? 
And this, if, if that report of Dan Rather is correct, uh, bin Laden has had very little to do with actual, uh, you know, conduct of this, uh, of this operation, although he was tagged as the mastermind. Now, there's another element which, which uh, most people don't recall because it wasn't really reported by the media, uh, is that on the 10th of September, um, the, the, the dad of the sitting president, namely George Bush Sr., uh, was meeting up with the brother of Osama bin Laden. His name is Shafiq bin Laden. Now, Shafiq bin Laden and uh, George Herbert Walker Bush, uh, former president of the United States, meet up at the Ritz-Carlton Hotel in New York. It's a business meeting, and they meet at the very same, on the very same day as these attacks. And then, I mean, anybody who understands police investigations is that uh, if, let's say, the brother of the terror mastermind happens to be there, the first thing you do is you, you, you arrest Shafiq, right? I mean, uh, Osama is an alleged suspect. Uh, one would assume that the brother of the suspect in an event like that would be at least remanded in custody by NYPD, but it didn't happen. And um, one would also suspect that the, the dad of the sitting president at least would be interrogated. We say, what on earth were you doing with the brother of mastermind Osama? Okay. Um, so in other words, double standards with regard to police uh, uh, investigation. Um, you don't, you don't uh, look into these things. Was there conflict of interest? Uh, was it an accident? Was it, you know, but uh, again, it, it looks very fishy that the sitting president's dad was uh, meeting up with the brother of terror mastermind Osama bin Laden. Right, and those meetings occurred on both the 10th and the 11th, isn't that right, that, of September? That's correct. I'm speaking with economist and director of the Center for Research on Globalization, Michel Chosodovsky. Today's show the post-9-11 era. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Also leading uh, up to 9-11, the days before 9-11, in fact, two days before 9-11 on September 9th, Ahmad Shah Massoud, leader of the Northern Alliance in Afghanistan, was assassinated by a couple of guys uh, masquerading as journalists. Now, Massoud, the leader of the Northern Alliance, he was opposed to the Taliban, wasn't he? Well, you know, I think this event is certainly uh, related. Uh, it wasn't, uh, it's related in some way to 9-11, but it raises some very complex uh, relationships because I think that the Northern uh, the Northern Alliance was supported by 
by Iran and Russia and so on. So there was some geopolitics, but I, I, uh, I'd have to go into that uh, more carefully. Uh, but it, again, it was something which was trivialized by the, you know, by the, by the media. Um, and um, uh, there were there were a whole series of events uh, which uh, which were trivialized. And then again, um, when we when we got uh, the 9/11 Commission report, which was chaired by by the former governor of New Jersey, Thomas Keene. Well, there were things in that report. Of course, that's where the debate started on on the truth and lies of 9/11. Uh, I, I read through that report when it came out. Uh, it was a couple of years later, and uh, what struck me is that the whole narrative of these uh, 9/11 uh, hijackers was based on cell phone conversations emanating from the planes, and uh, they were very spontaneous uh, conversations. But anybody who has travelled uh, uh, travels uh, by plane knows, and that's even true today, that you can't use your phone above 8,000 feet. Uh, the technology wasn't available in 2001, and even if it had been available, you would have had to put in your credit card details and everything and so on to, to get a connection while the terrorists were going back and forth in the aisle. But uh, I checked, I, I checked very carefully, and there have been various studies on that. Uh, it just doesn't make sense. Uh, they, they, uh, they have recordings of conversations taking place at 31,000 feet. Uh, hello, mom. And uh, yes, something's happening on the plane. But uh, the evidence largely suggests that these conversations could not have taken place given the technology prevailing in 2001. And even the telecom industry has confirmed that. Um, and so the, the, the whole uh, narrative, official narrative, is very tenuous. And the lies can be easily spotted and, and confronted. Uh, and and then of course uh, this whole debate that came several years later with regard to the to the buildings and how they collapsed in, in you know in in a few seconds and and then the issue of of controlled demolition uh, was was raised and I I think that ultimately the, the whole debate on controlled demolition is is unequivocal uh, it cannot be refuted. Um, but nonetheless, um, uh, the lies prevail. And of course, one of the big lies was the fact that Building 7, which nobody had heard of until much later, collapsed uh, in the afternoon of 9-11. And the announcement um, of its collapse was made 23 minutes before it actually happened. So that the media, particularly BBC and CNN, uh, reported that, and they reported something which hadn't happened, which uh, suggests the quote-unquote conspiracy as well as complicity of the media at the highest levels. As well, with regard to the uh, cell phone calls from the planes that you mentioned, in the uh, subsequent 
trial of the so-called 20th hijacker, Zacharias Musawi, the FBI uh, confirmed at his trial that none of the cell phone calls from Flight 77 that was claimed to have crashed into the Pentagon, that none of those uh, cell phone calls connected. So the FBI itself uh, showed that, that those claims were simply not true. Well, absolutely. Uh, the, the FBI did not endorse the, you know, the official narrative. At least they didn't endorse the, the 9-11 um, reports. And some of their headings with regard to, to Osama bin Laden uh, didn't even mention uh, the September 11 attacks. There was no, absolutely no evidence that, in fact, bin Laden was behind this. Okay, from even from the evidence that we've got, the the fact that he was in a hospital, the fact that he's a, he's a Saudi, he's an intelligence asset of the CIA. Now, very important. Uh, you might recall this statement by Bush on the I think it was on the 25th of September 2001, where he uh, where he said, and this was repeated ad nauseum, uh, you are either with us or with the terrorists. Okay. You are either with us or with the terrorists. Now, the fact of the matter is that the that that the U.S. presidency was already with the terrorists. Okay, so that 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 statement is notoriously that is a contradictory statement because the Bush family was were friends with the Bin Ladens. Shafiq Bin Laden was with the dad. Uh, the CIA had been supporting Al Qaeda since 1979, as documented. I mean, we don't. We've got tons of documents. So th this is a nonsensical statement. Uh, you are either with us or with the terrorists. The fact is, the U.S. government is with the terrorists, and that is the stepping stone towards the so-called global war on terrorism. There was a, de uh, um, a decision directive, which was issued on the 4th of September. Uh, to the effect that they would be going after the terrorists, and that was uh, that was a week before 9/11, and it was then submitted apparently to uh, it was signed by 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 Bush several weeks after 9/11, but they already had decided that they were going to go after the terrorists and and wage a war on terrorism. But in fact, what happened was exactly the opposite. They used the war on terrorism as a pretext to intervene militarily in Afghanistan and in subsequent wars. And at the same time, they supported the recruitment of al-Qaeda mercenaries in different parts of the world, and not only in the Middle East, but also in sub-Saharan Africa and in Southeast Asia. Uh, and then these extensive uh, um, jihadist uh, um, organizations which were then involved in Libya as well as in, in Syria and so on, they were supported by Western intelligence. So that on the one hand, you wage a war on terrorism, and then on the other, you uh, covertly support these terror organizations, which become your foot soldiers. And that is amply documented. And that's why, the, in a sense, the, the whole geopolitics, which which started up with 9-11, uh, where it, it really affects the nature of warfare, particularly after 2003, 
where the United States will not necessarily intervene uh, in a country in the form of a, of a large-scale theater war like in Iraq uh, or previously, let's say, in, in Vietnam, but it will send in, it will recruit through its, uh, its allies, uh, mercenaries, jihadist mercenaries, which will then go into the country and displace and destroy a secular government which they want to, to replace and have as a proxy. Now, a, another thing which is very important to understand, and people, we don't know it because, this, well, it goes back in history, but um, the objective ultimately is to destroy countries. And when they went into Afghanistan, and I mean, the going into Afghanistan was not in 2001. It was before that, because the United States supported the, the, the jihadists. They supported al-Qaeda. They supported the Taliban. But Afghanistan was an advanced, modern, secular country. Uh, far more advanced than any of the neighboring countries, including Pakistan or India and so on. It had a, it had a welfare state. The rights of women were developed in the public sector. Um, if you go back and look at the archives of pictures in, in, the, in the 1970s and even in the 1980s, you'll see a country which, very much, which is very westernized, the girls are going around. We're going around in miniskirts, and uh, you see the, uh, you know, people in the street, the universities, and so on. So what, in essence, has happened, is that, and this is, of course, this is, this is genocide. It's the destruction of a country, and that has been, I think, the underlying objective: is the destruction of countries. It's not necessarily to win a war, but it is to destroy. A country and transform that country into a territory which then can be which becomes part of the colonial it would be a, a part of the empire and uh, in Afghanistan in particular they're very uh, important uh, um, mineral resources and they, they certainly were both strategic interests as well as economic interests pertaining to the to that invasion which started on the 7th of October uh, 2001. You have said that the war in Afghanistan had been a continuous war, that it did not start in 2001. Could, could we briefly go over some of the earlier modern history of Afghanistan? What about the Soviet occupation of Afghanistan starting in 1979? What led to the Soviet occupation, and what ended it? Well, you know, actually confirmed by uh, Brzezinski, um, the... The insurgency supported by the CIA in Afghanistan commenced prior to the so-called Soviet invasion. In fact, it wasn't an invasion. It was based on an agreement between the, the Kabul government and, 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 the, and the Soviet Union to bring in troops. But that the war had already commenced, and it was the U.S. proxies recruited by by the CIA, uh, 
which was called, which eventually was called Al-Qaeda, uh, which were involved in terrorist acts directed against the secular government. And you could say that that secular government is, is rather similar to, to, let's say, the Syrian government. I mean, uh, the, the, the 70s, uh, you, you see a country which which looks like a country, and now that country doesn't look like a country anymore. It, it's a territory. You see people impoverished, uh, uh, wearing uh, different clothes and so on, uh, you know, with, with uh, it's, a, an, it's, it's an Islamic fundamentalist state. Um, at least that's what the media portrays. But that would not have happened uh, if the United States had not supported the jihadists going back to 1979. And, and we have ample documents to that effect. The, the, the madrasas, in other words, the Quranic schools uh, where, where, the, where the terrorists were, uh, you know, were indoctrinated, well, the textbooks, where did they come from? They were published by the University of Nebraska and they were brought to Afghanistan. You know, there was a process of uh, of creating these these mercenaries and indoctrinating them, it was a it was a very comprehensive project, and that occurred that started before the um, the intervention of of um, of the Soviet Union. But of course, it's also true that uh, Afghanistan was very much in the orbit of the Soviet Union at at that time. I'm speaking with economist and director of the Center for Research on Globalization, Michel Chosodovsky. Today's show, The Post-9-11 Era. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. What about the cultivation of poppy in Afghanistan for heroin production? How important of a role did the drug trade have in the decision to wage war on Afghanistan? Well, that's a very important question. First of all, that um, the, the opium cultivation goes back, in fact, to the late 70s, and it was, uh, it was a means to finance the insurgency with a CIA initiative. And um, what happened at the time, uh, or at least the, the situation which prevailed prior to the invasion, is that Afghanistan had become the largest supplier of heroin in the world, producing something of the order of 90% of the global supply of of uh, opium, which is transformed into heroin. And what happened is that in 2000, the Taliban government implemented uh, a major um, drug eradication program, which was based on crop substitution. In other words, the poppy cultivation was replaced and uh, eventually the production collapsed. And in fact, it collapsed to an exceedingly low level that they had, in a, in a matter of a year and a half, they had brought down uh, opium cultivation to something of the order of 180 tons. 
Uh, it was a 90% collapse in the supply and production of, of opium. And um, immediately following the invasion in October, the uh, production of opium from the poppy fields regained its, its historical levels. And in fact, today, uh, it's something of the order, certainly more than 20 times, what it was in 2001. It, it, it depends on the base year, but uh, bear in mind that this, uh, this has uh, economic and geopolitical implications because um, heroin uh, is, a, is a very valuable uh, a commodity in the, in the retail markets across the world, and it's a multi-billion uh, dollar industry. Uh, but that money accrues to the drug traders and retail traders uh, internationally. It doesn't necessarily accrue to, to Afghanistan. But uh, I, I've looked into it. We're talking about hundreds of billions of dollars of revenue uh, resulting from the opium trade. Uh, and uh, certainly what happened is that the invasion supported that trade. Uh, Ironically, in 2001, the opium eradication program implemented by the Afghan government and supported by the United Nations was the object of praise and acknowledgement at the United Nations uh, General Assembly. And that was <laughs> right at the time when, when the war had started. Um, and uh, I think another important factor is that, is, is that uh, this um, increase in, in, uh, in opium production um, in Afghanistan coincides also with uh, the opioid crisis in the United States. In other words, the, the, the dramatic increase in the in the number of heroin users in the United States. And there we have data on that. There were, there were 189,000 heroin users in the U.S. in 2001. And uh, a few years later, in 2012, 2013, that had gone up to 3.8 million. Okay? And uh, that would not have been possible without this, this surge in opium production which occurred uh, in the wake of the invasion. Do you have any sense of who exactly it is that's making all the money on the drug trade at, the, at a higher level? Well, that's a very difficult question because uh, there are so many, well, there are intermediaries, there are powerful drug cartels, there's money laundering. Uh, but um, there's no doubt that this is something which is uh, which is supported by very powerful financial interests. And, and, and we have to note that, that ultimately this money is entered, enters into the Western banking system, into the offshore accounts and so on. It may have been laundered several times before it actually is deposited. Well, no, it's deposited at each stage of the laundering process, but... Um, I can't really answer that question, but but that's the hidden, that's unspoken truth. Uh, it it's something which benefits organized crime. It's something which also benefits financial institutions, and we know for a fact 
that the, the, the drug trade is also protected by very powerful politicians. Um, now, that trade is still there in Afghanistan. Uh, and uh, I, I think there's their vested interests which are uh, committed to maintaining that trade. It's a very, very important trade. It, you know, in, in a sense, it's even more important than than the the, the oil. Uh, well, oil comes first, but uh, after oil, it's weapons, and then it's drugs. And uh, Afghanistan is the largest producer of heroin in the world. Uh, in fact, it's almost the only producer of heroin in the world for uh, for uh, you know for heroin production. Uh, and that yields tremendous amount of money to to uh, people around the world who are who are involved in that trade, uh, drug cartels, uh, financial institutions, and so on. Is the U.S. today in control of Afghanistan? And as well, what about Pakistan, who, of course, at the time of nine eleven, was a, a big ally of the United States. Now, the, the U.S. is not in control of, uh, of Afghanistan. Uh, it has a proxy government, but uh, the country, the, the Taliban, uh, constitute the resistance. Now, I suspect that the Taliban are different to what they were in 2001, there's a, there is a resistance movement, and there's also resistance movement outside of the Taliban. The people want the, the American troops to go out. Um, but there's another dimension to this. Um, if if we, we look at the map, uh, we have uh, a country which is, um, is in Central Asia, it has borders, uh, well, it has borders with several countries. You're right in under, underscoring Pakistan. Pakistan is no longer within the U.S. sphere of interest. There have been major political changes. Pakistan is no longer a military ally of the United States. It's much more aligned with China now, and it has important uh, uh, trade and, and uh, trade agreements with, with China. Um, but then on the other hand, if we look at that region, Afghanistan has a border with China. Uh, it's a very small border and a very strategic border. It's called the Wakhan Corridor. Now, what are the Chinese doing? Uh, they're building a road, which is going to link um, Afghanistan to, to Western China, uh, essentially the uh, Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region. And... Um, and the Chinese are already present in the mining industry. Um, so I think uh, what is at stake is that uh, U.S. military presence is there to protect U.S. interests, which are being eroded by other competing powers, including China. But at the same time, um, they are, in a sense, also protecting, of course, unofficially, the opium trade, uh, which is a, a multi-billion dollar operation. There are other aspects to this, is that Afghanistan also has certain strategic um, 
raw materials, including lithium. And now lithium, of course, is very important because it is the input into the production of batteries. And uh, the Chinese are involved in that. Uh, and so I think that, that um, Afghanistan is one of the major suppliers of lithium. What about Afghanistan's strategic location? Isn't it, and you pointed this out, a major transport corridor for oil and gas and minerals, etc.? Well, it, it certainly is, because it has, it has borders with uh, Pakistan, Iran, Turkmenistan, then it has uh, also a border with China, uh, not a big one. And uh, it was, uh, it was also considered by the oil companies as a major transit route, uh, taking oil from the Caspian Sea basin down to, down to the Arabian Sea. Uh, it was called the Trans-Afghan Pipeline Project. So that, I, I would say that is important. But historically, Afghanistan has always been strategic. In the 19th century, it was the divide between the, the Tsarist Russia on the one hand and the British Empire on the other. Uh, in fact, they even had a border at one point. And uh, again, if you look at the map, you'll see that it really is at the crossroads of, of major uh, economic powers. Well, it's, well Ru Russia no longer has a border with Afghanistan in the post-Soviet period, but many of Russia's allies, including uh, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, and Tajikistan, uh, you know, they're, they're very close to, uh, they border onto Afghanistan, and, um, and ultimately all these countries now are aligned with, uh, with the SCO, the, the Shanghai Cooperation Agreement, the SCO, which ultimately is an alliance between China and Russia, but with uh, uh, many of the former Soviet republics, which are members of this, of this alliance. And then Afghanistan, I think, has, uh, is not observer, it has a partnership um, agreement with, already with the SCO. Uh, and uh, in all likelihood, Afghanistan will play a crucial role within this this new geopolitical um, sphere of influence, which is really Eurasia, extending from from eastern Russia and China right through to you know to the Mediterranean. So I think that is really what is at stake. I'm speaking with economist and director of the Center for Research on Globalization, Michel Chosodovsky. Today's show the post-9-11 era. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Now, uh, if we go back to 9-11, 9-11 uh, a pretext and a justification for waging, waging yet another war on Afghanistan. And the, the objective was ultimately also strategic from the point of view of the U.S., uh, but I, I think it has been an utter failure from the point of view even of gaining control over strategic raw materials and stating itself economically, and, and now the, the military presence there in, in, 
in Afghanistan, the U.S. military presence is, 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 is not sufficient or insignificant with a view to, to maintaining a, a sort of a foothold. And what's happening is that the Chinese are ultimately going to take over. Um, and I think that's, that's, that's ongoing. So this is also, uh, uh, Afghanistan is in a sense also a, a war. Indirectly, it's, it's the issue of spheres of influence. And those, the sphere of influence is now um, being transferred back to, to China and Russia to the detriment of, um, of the United States. Uh, and uh, this is particularly uh, true in, in view of Pakistan's realignment with China. And what about the extension of al-Qaeda almost worldwide, which you mentioned a while ago? How did this come about as a result of 9-11? And, of course, you've also pointed out at the same time that all of these al-Qaeda entities are supported by Western intelligence. Does the extension of al-Qaeda almost worldwide, uh, is that actually what what the war on terror is all about that was created by September 11th? Well, it, it certainly is. It's the globalization uh, of, uh, of these uh, terror organizations. Uh, but maybe let me go back to, to the history. Uh, in fact, it even started before uh, the, the, the 1979 Soviet-Afghan war, but, but that was certainly... A, a sta starting point from the point of view of the creation of Al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda in Arabic means the base. And, and in fact, uh, according to one author, um, specialist, uh, military analyst, uh, French military analyst, it, it was the computer database of the CIA. Now, I have no means of verifying this assertion, but it was the base and it was ultimately... the. The process of recruiting mercenaries, and it was it was done by the CIA with the support of Saudi Arabia and Pakistan, essentially. Now, and and then prior to 9/11, you also had the recruitment of mercenaries, which was sent to Bosnia um, in the 90s. There, the wars in Chechnya, we recall, which was uh, which was in the Russian Federation. Uh, and then in the, in the immediate uh, wake of, uh, of 9-11, uh, we, we see the extension of, of these um, mercenaries, Al-Qaeda-affiliated mercenaries, to a whole series of countries. Uh, the, war in, the wars in Libya, the war in, uh, also the war in Syria, again, it was the influx of um, Mujahideen, which uh, were recruited. Uh, in fact, they were recruited by NATO through various channels uh, with allies in the Middle East participating in that process or participating in the, in the recruitment. It was Turkey and, and, and NATO which were involved in recruiting al-Qaeda for the, the war in, in, in Syria uh, then you had also the Libya Islamic Fighting Group, which is an affiliate of Al Qaeda, which was, which was well, it was already there, but it was, 
it was uh, used to uh, it was used by NATO to uh, to implement the downfall of the Gaddafi government in 2011. Then you had Boko Haram in in uh, Nigeria. Uh, you had Al Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb uh, in North Africa. Uh, then you had Al Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. There were a whole series of of, of um, jihadist groups which were spreading and which were supported by Western intelligence. And then, in, if you're looking at Southeast Asia, uh, you'll find jihadist groups in Indonesia, Malaysia, uh, Thailand, not to a significant extent, and of course also in the Philippines. Now. Uh, well, what this suggests, oh, and I should mention also in China, in the Yuga uh, Autonomous Region, there have been uh, jihadist groups there going back uh, before 9-11 even, even before 9-11. And those are, those are supported uh, covertly by, by Western intelligence, and also at, at one time it was supported by Pakistani intelligence, the so-called ISI. Uh, Michel, uh, I just remembered that a long time ago you once mentioned to me that Islamic fundamentalism was a product of Western intelligence. Could you elaborate on that? Well, it, it was... Uh, it was uh, certainly uh, a strategy uh, of U.S. intelligence to recruit um, so-called jihadists and that the process of indoctrination was actually uh, under the auspices of U.S. intelligence. That started in Afghanistan, okay? Uh, but it's not lim it wasn't limited to Afghanistan, but... It started in Afghanistan, which was a secular country, and interestingly, in in that in the course of of a, a couple of in the course of of a decade, the whole educational system in Afghanistan was replaced by the the madrasas, the Quranic schools. They closed down the public schools, and and in other words, the the model of uh, the. What U.S. foreign policy has sought, particularly in the, in the Middle East, is to install Islamic states, okay, and to displace and destroy secular governments and secular movements. And uh, it's not limited, of course, to Afghanistan. Uh, it, it, you, you look at the situation in Syria, that was the objective. And, and actually... We have official documents uh, of the Defense Intelligence Agency of the United States, which actually confirms it. It said, "Yes, we we uh, we uh, we favor regime change in Syria and its replacement by uh, by an Islamic government with which we can transact in a more friendly way." They they never denied that, and um, the the whole uh, I mean. When you destroy a country, you destroy its, its secular institutions and you replace it by something else. If you look at the Gulf states, well, what are they? They, they are 
well, their proxy states, their allies of the United States, and what kind of government do they have? They are, they're Islamic governments, most of them. Um, Saudi Arabia, uh, Kuwait, uh, to a lesser extent, uh, and so on. Uh, the Emirates, these are Islamic governments, and they serve the interests of the United States as opposed to secular governments with some kind of working democracy. That is something you don't want. Um, and um, this also ties into a process of of creating divisions within um, countries which have several ethnic groups or several groups with different religions. Now, the, the Shia versus the Sunni, and, and if you take Syria, well, you have Christians, you have Druze, you have Sunni, you have Shia, they all live in harmony with one another until the uh, until the uh, the onset of of the of the U.S. NATO-led war in March 2011. What about the nuclear posture review of 2001 and the statement that the U.S. was prepared to go after non-state actors who had nuclear weapons? Well. Uh, Indeed, uh, the events of 9-11 were conducive, and that's very important, in a shift in military military doctrine, but also a shift in nuclear doctrine. Um, They defined the so-called non-state actors. It became a a talking point. And those non-state actors are people like bin Laden and so on and al-Qaeda, threatening America, okay? And it, it, it was no longer necessarily uh, Russia who was threatening America, but Al-Qaeda threatening America. And then uh, this nuclear posture review, which was, brought, which was actually brought out in 2001, it was then sent to the Senate, I think, in early 2002. They had defined, first of all, they had defined a new doctrine, um, of um, nuclear war, which was called preemptive nuclear war. And in fact, this whole notion of preemptive means that you attack an enemy before they attack you. And that's exactly what they did with, with, with regard to Afghanistan. They said, well, not quite, but they said Afghanistan is a threat to our security. Iraq is a, friend, a threat to our national security. But there were, there were two elements in this nuclear posture review which, which are important, is that they identified the non-state actors, i.e. al-Qaeda, as potential nuclear powers, that they could fabricate a bomb and then they could come and that they could drop that bomb in, in, in uh, Washington. These were small-scale bombs. And so that uh, the United States then... Uh, implemented, uh, uh, actually embodied this notion into the the doctrine of going after the terrorists. But then there was another element, is that in that, and that's maybe beyond our discussion today, but uh, they said uh, we must develop a new generation of nuclear weapons which are harmless to civilians. And that was the the U.S. tactical nuclear bombs, 
which were already there, the mini-nukes, and uh, they were planning to use those uh, against terrorists, against Saddam Hussein, against Iran, and because the explosion was, allegedly the explosion was underground, but in fact it wasn't really totally underground, uh, these could be used on a preemptive basis, and they were harmless to civilians. So the, a new era of lies and fabrications was introduced, and it was indirectly linked to the doctrine of going after the terrorists, which was um, contained in the decision directive of September 4th, signed by the president, I think, in September 25th, 2001. Michel Chosodovsky, thank you. Thank you very much. I've been speaking with Michelle Chosodovsky. Today's show has been the post-9-11 era. Michelle Chosodovsky is the founder, director, and editor of the Center for Research on Globalization, based in Montreal, Quebec. The global research website, globalresearch.ca, publishes news articles, commentary, background research, and analysis. Michel Chosodovsky is the author of 11 books, including The Globalization of Poverty and the New World Order, War and Globalization, The Truth Behind September 11th, America's War on Terrorism, The Globalization of War, and America's Long War Against Humanity. Visit globalresearch.ca. That's globalresearch.ca. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner, Yaramako, and Tony Rango. Visit us at gunsandbutter.org to listen to past programs, comment on shows, or join our email list to receive our newsletter that includes recent shows and updates. Email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.org. Follow us on Twitter at GNB Radio. You did.